It's time to redefine what employee engagement is exactly. Time to get data to back it up. Time to have it follow the worker through their entire workday and time to see how it correlates to, would you believe, happiness. To talk about that today, the two Ds have Matt Phelan from The Happiness Project here on Dave and Darn Demystified. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome to today's episode. And today we have Matt Phelan from the Happiness Index join us. Matt, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the Happiness Index? Hi, David. Hi, Davish. Yes, I'm Matt. I've just got back from the school run, which is an important part of my happiness and also one of the biggest, most stressful things I do in a day. I was going to say, having done the school run, that never made me happy. If we went back in time to Greece, ancient Greece, they sort of understood different types of happiness. So the, the mood bit that goes up and down and like your underlying happiness and me doing the school run is important for my underlying happiness, but really bad for my mood. Right. Like if you were to video me and observe me as an experiment, you would think there's an unhappy guy that's going grey rapidly because of this situation. But if you said to me, could you do this podcast 9am, I would say no, because I do the school run and that's what makes me happy. So <laughs> I'll be added off of my introduction, but I did want to explain a little bit about happiness definition. No, I'm intrigued already, to be honest with you. So tell us a bit about the happiness index then and what that's all about. So the happiness index started as an internal product for a marketing agency. Um, we know each other via um, someone called Pete Ballard, um, who ran a UX company, and I ran a digital marketing agency. And when we were in our 20s, we scaled that business and eventually sold it and had all that nice bit that happened, but, and also the stressful bit that comes with it. We had this saying that we stole from Richard Branson, which is the customers don't come first, the employees come first. And we always felt like if we looked after our employees, they would look after our customers and we would make more money. The problem is when you look around, let's just take the marketing agency world broadly, as we kind of know that as an industry, there's different founders that are successful in different ways. Like some people do run a sweatshop. There's no getting away from it. Some agencies are sweatshops. Some do treat their employees really well, but sometimes they've achieved the same amount. And you think, well, does treating your employees really make a difference? That's what I wanted to know because I'm a geek, I'm a data person. So the happiness index was built to understand First off, is there a correlation between the happiness of your employees and the happiness of your customers? And then we were trying to understand, does that lead into the financial success of our organization? So long story short, the Happiness Index is an employee engagement and happiness platform, but it was only ever built as an internal tool. We didn't release it into the wild until our customers started going, you know that thing you use on us, can we use that for our employees? 
And we said, no, you can't because it, you know what it's like when you build an internal thing. You don't, you might put a shelf up at home, but you're not going to start like hiring yourself out as a shelf putter up or a person. And that was where we were. And then we realized there was an opportunity there. We sold the marketing agency and then pumped all the money. Probably should have been a bit more smarter and maybe invested in everything, in some other stuff, but we just went all in on the house. <laughs> When I first met Darmish all those years ago, he would talk about happy staff, happy clients. Yeah. And, you know, that's often been my mantra. I've tried to kind of live up to that. Well, there's a few things. One is I've never then looked at the direct correlation between how people feel and what that means from a finance point of view. It's immediately interesting. The other thing is, you know, I've kind of pondered happiness over the years. So you kind enough to talk about different types of happiness at the start in terms of the sort of happiness index how are you defining happiness so when we came to the subject we sort of looked at what was out there and companies tend to measure something called employee engagement yeah the problem with that is it was coined in 1990 at boston university someone called bill Kahn, and employee engagement was to measure the emotions of the individuals in an organization Post-1990, what happened is lots of big consultancy firms got hold of it and turned it into this like weird thing. And I'm going to go on to something that I know is important to Darmish. It became something that is there for the company, not for the employee. It was one of those things that was started by Bill Kahn to understand how you create a better environment for the employees. But then it actually became more of a, how do you engage your employees just for output? And Output and productivity are important, but they're just one part of the whole mix when we look at things like well-being, burnout, and so on. So all of the traditional stuff is built on a traditional psychology base. But one of the problems with a traditional psychology base is a lot of psychology, if you look back, is written by white men who are observing human beings through their eyes and their experiences, okay? Don't get me started on that, because it turns out a lot of it's all made up as well, isn't it? It's people's views, isn't it, based on their background. So let's get a book out here. There's a great book here. Where is it? This is called Invisible Women. So Invisible Women is about exposing data bias in a world designed for men. We're free men on here, so let's be open and let's look at some data. And let's call me out. So I'm exactly six foot tall. Train seats are designed for a six foot tall man. So we could get into a million different things about work, couldn't we? But if me and I don't know what the average height of a woman is, but let's say it's five, six, five, seven, I'm just guessing. If we were to travel to work every day on the same train, I am a slight advantage because that train seat's actually designed for me. So neuroscience comes along and suddenly it's able to analyze and look at what's happening in brains and what's happening in the body. And I've never actually dissected a brain or whatever, but when you look at a brain, it's pretty difficult to look at a brain and understand what gender that brain is. We worked with someone called Clive Highland to convert the latest neuroscience into understanding what drives happiness. The long and the short of that, if I give you the top four drivers, would be freedom to take opportunities, acknowledgement, and I'll give you the top one, and then I'll come back to the other one, but one of the most fascinating things is that the top driver of happiness is relationships. If you go to the West Coast of America and you read a self-help book on happiness, what it will tell you is it's about thinking yourself happy. That's the realm of positive psychology. And I'm slightly simplifying it, but we know from a neuroscientific and our data perspective, the number one driver 
let's just say you live in a world where there's only David and Darmesh. David, you can't be happy without Darmesh being happy, and Darmesh can't be happy without David being happy. Ah, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> it is actually true anyway i think we're kind of connected yeah. in a way that we impact yeah. each other's happiness so yeah yeah i get you so i left out the last one of the top four i always say it's the starting point which is safety let's say there's an island you both live in unless you both feel safe you're going to struggle because there's a bit of a fight or flight and survive versus thrive part of this but long story short we worked about 10 years ago to build a model out based on data and neuroscience with Clive Highland. And the long and the short of it is there are thousands of factors that impact your happiness, absolutely thousands. If you wanted to know the top four is safety, relationships, freedom, and acknowledgement. Wow. It sounds to me, not to undermine any of your extensive research, etc., but these are like basic hygiene factors for staff, right? You want to go to work feeling that in anything that you do, you get acknowledged. Yeah. You want to go to work knowing that you're safe. You want to go to work because actually you want to interact with other people, right? So with that, why is it so difficult for companies to get things right? I mean, these are basic principles, no? I think this is the problem with the saying, Damish, that's common sense. Yeah. But people say that all the time, don't they? But yeah. one person's common sense is not another person's common sense, isn't it? Like, I've got a book out, it's called Bring to Be Happy, The Business Case for Happiness, right? And I wrote it, and afterwards I just thought, what a waste of time. I've just written a book. It's about the science behind why this is important. Yeah, yeah, You read the book and you think, why is the time? I've basically <laughs> written an entire book of life's work to tell people that maybe if they treat their employees well, the employees might stick around a bit longer and maybe care about their work and maybe do a better job. And it's the science behind that. And I just finished it, handed it over to the editor, and I thought, I can't believe I'm wasting my time doing that. But actually, let's give everyone a bit of a break here. Life is complex. And when you're running a business or leading a business, you're getting stuff coming over from you from every angle. Being an entrepreneur is hard. Being a manager for the first time is hard. Everyone messes with being up a manager for the first time. And also, human beings pass on bad behaviours to each other, don't they? I'd love to write a book on how your first manager defines you. Because you just don't know, do you? You're like, you're a teenager or you're in your 20s. It's your first job. And if someone says, well, if someone's not in at exactly nine o'clock, you need to get that person in and give them a hard time. That's what you're going to do because you respect that manager. You're a sponge at that point. So I think when you read it and you see the data is really common sense. I think it's important to have data to back stuff up so that you can go, not only does this make sense, scientifically, this is proven that we need to do. I've seen leaders that shout at people in meeting. And then you go to another meeting where the team below, right, is replicating that person's behavior. I mean, that's absolutely for me, like common sense. That's not how you treat human beings. Yeah. I think one of the issues is that sometimes company goals contradict like good behavior or like people think that to reach a company goal, which is about profitability or a revenue number, et cetera. Yeah. You have to be hard on the salespeople and yeah. hard on the customer service people, da, 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 because otherwise they won't do what you need them to do to meet this number, right? Absolutely. Can I interject, you know, because the last podcast we did, we talked to a chap called Andrew Barnes about the four-day week. Yeah. Now, when you look at their evidence for productivity, you go, well, this is a no-brainer. Everybody yeah. should move to a four-day week. Yeah. 
But you just know that flies in the face of logic to most businesses. They're kind of geared around a five-day week. So people aren't going to look at it and go, yeah, let's adopt that. I guess lack of imagination or lack of common sense is preventing people to be thinking outside the box around these subjects. Dave, though, you mentioned the thing about the objective about happy customer, happy staff, right? Bearing in mind, we were doing that like 20 odd years ago. Yeah. This was 50% of your bonus, right? If you got a single complaint from other members of staff, you lose that quarter. You got a single complaint from any customer, you lose that quarter. People argued, well, you know, it could be their fault. Yeah. I'm not in the blame game, right? If the complaint occurred, it's a fact, right? Yeah. I'm not, you know, adjudicating this. That's what it was. And for some people, it was too little. But the main goal was, look, just act like a decent person. And there's no reason for people to complain about you. It's fairly straightforward, right? Damish, I just want to come back to the four-day work week. Yeah. Just on that point, that's the decent thing to do. Just give us and David a little snapshot of your upbringing and who was around you and the values they taught you. If you could just give us a bit of a snapshot about the sort of things that your family or friends around you, the values that they were teaching you. I think I'd say my upbringing was fairly tough. Like we didn't have a lot of money. I didn't get to do all the things you know, all my friends were wearing or doing, etc. Right. But my parents valued everything that they did have. Right. And there was a lot of love in the family, you know, to look after each other. Yeah. Which kind of made up not having the things that other people had as such. Yeah. The reason I want to bring that up is because that's very similar to mine. Like we couldn't afford football boots and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, I think somewhere you've learned that you've learned those values of decency. Right. You've learned that. This is not to let people off. That to you, it is so obvious because I think somewhere that's been passed through your family or your wider friends and so on. But not everyone is brought up in that way. Yeah. And you see it in society all the time, the way someone might treat a checkout assistant. I think that's disgusting the way that you're speaking to that person. <laughs> to me, that's common sense that you should be nice to a checkout assistant. But I've obviously learned that somewhere from my mum or my dad or whatever. And I just want to pick up that point. Again, if we take David's world of UX, it's like someone saying user experience is common sense. Like, I'll just build a website that everyone can... That's what you You know, I kind of get that. I mean, the reason I brought that objective up again was coupled with that, Dave, if you remember, when we hired people, they used to say, well, look, I don't care where you do this work, right? Like, if you come into the office, I don't necessarily need to see you, but I need the work to get done. I don't care how many hours you do, and by the way... If you end up doing like 70 hour a week, I'm not impressed. I'm way more impressed with the lazy person that can get it done in 15 hours, right? Yeah. You know, it was just basics of like what I thought would get the most out of people, right? Or the flexibility that they needed to get a job done. My focus was really just getting the job done, right? But at the same time is what do I need to give these people to get the job done and then, you know, carry on like that? Yeah, I think Damish, that point there feeds really nice into the four day work week, which is I broadly am a supporter of the four day work week and the data that I've seen. But I do have some major issues with it. And the major issues that I have is that it can scale the existing problem. Because if you have a poor culture um, or poor ways of doing things, it actually just pushes the problem from five days to four days because 
how you described it there, you don't care how long it takes someone to do something. For me, that's actually what people want. And I just want to bring in our data perspective is if we put the office into the mix as well and work from home and four day work week, there are some people that want to work in an office. There are some people who want to work hybrid and there's some people who want to work from home. But what 100% of people want is flexibility. Many of the happiness index, we work in finance, we work with banks, we work with law firms, but most of the employees in the world don't work in a sort of what you'd call a professional services environment. They're like security guards, they're bar staff and so on. So we work with organizations like that as well. A security guard that has to be on a particular checkpoint for a particular amount of time, they can't just go off when they need to go off. But what you can offer employees in that situation is flexibility. So let's say two security guards want to swap their shift without going to their manager because they need to do something or whatever. That's flexibility. And the thing for me is the five-day work week is rigid. But the four-day work week is just the same rigid thing moved from five days to four days. So I am broadly a supporter of the four-day work week, but I think it can scale the same issues. And because we've talked about invisible women, let's talk about someone, and this is such a credible thing, especially me as someone who wants to do the school run. If I didn't have my wife and switch the school runs around, so she picks up and I drop off, my preference would actually be a six-day work week with reduced hours in the middle to get done what I want to do. So broadly, I'm a supporter of the four-day work week because I get the principle of it. But I think it's a real issue that it can scale the current problems because, and that I am sure there is some people out there that may be extreme. They may want to work three hours, seven days a week. But all the point that I'd like to bring to this conversation is flexibility is what the employees are looking for. End up with a really rigid four-day work week. I think we've only just published a podcast, but Andrew does make that point really well. Yeah. And he talks about someone who the best day of the week for him to work was a Sunday. So, you know, for him, the flexibility to work on a Sunday was part of that four day week thing. Yeah. Because that's when he could get his work done. And, you know, I find thinking space for Sundays is a bloody good time to do it, to be honest with you. So I think it's really well made. I want to go back to the happiness index itself. So it's a tool for measuring things. So if I'm a bank, would you come in and have they got questions around things, NPS and engagement scores? Is that why they're reaching out to you? Yeah. What do you do in terms of getting involved with that business and what's the outcome? Yeah. So let's pick a real life example. The oldest private bank, certainly in the UK, must be one of the oldest private banks in the world, Horum Co. Yeah, customer. Um, They're one of our clients. They realized that they had got customer service to a particular level and they just couldn't get it to the next level. So they approached us and said, look, we've got it to a certain level, but we think the only way we can do this is to really improve the employee experience to then up the customer experience. So that's an example of an organization coming to us. And it's also really good point out because sometimes people bucket employee happiness as like a new funky thing. Like organizations that have done well, we've understood this for 100 years. Cadbury's were building houses. And, yeah. houses. It's not like the happiness index came along and we invented this. Entrepreneurs that got it always got it. But society has changed and some of the things that we've learned have been forgotten. But Horanco sort of, they, I think they're 300, 400 years old as an organization. 
But in their DNA, they know that looking after their employees is a good thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be where they are now. But they just want to modernize it and then start to get data on it. The challenge with lots of financial institutions is they've been around for a long time and they've done things the same way for a long time. So they had a traditional engagement survey I think they've been doing for about 15 years. They had to unpick it and rebuild it. Um, So they measure both sides of happiness. We have a product called Employee Voice. So that's the mood part. That's measuring how people feel 24-7. That has high ups and downs. It's supposed to fluctuate. And then they're measuring employee happiness throughout the year. So they're looking at the trends as well. But ultimately, what companies are doing is finding out all the stuff that is holding their employees back and then dividing it into what they can do something about and what they can't. So if you take the Horan Co. Bank, they're in an amazing location on Fleet Street from memory. If you are unhappy with that location, it's unlikely the bank's going to change that location. They've been there for hundreds of years. You go in there and they've got actual guns with Wilkinson swords, they're called. That's where the name The Razor comes from. It's like a museum in there. If you are an employee there and you're unhappy with location, it's better off the CEO goes, look, this is a traditional business. We're not going to change. But these are the things that we can change. And that's how they're improving it. And there's organisations all around the world doing that now. Can you tell us a bit more about how important is vision to staff? Because that really didn't come up in your four criteria. For me, that's kind of a big thing. But is it? Absolutely massive. So what we talked about is happiness. But the happiness index really should be called the happiness and engagement index, but it's too late for a rebrand now and we've become known as that. (laughs) So what I want to share with you is the top four drivers of engagement. Okay, so from a neuroscientific perspective, happiness is what your heart needs at work. Engagement is what your brain needs. Companies typically run by smart intellectual people who get the brain part, which we're about to go on to. But sometimes you end up with leaders that are not emotionally intelligent, which is where you lose the happiness part, that understanding, the things that, Damish, I can already tell that that is a skill of yours, emotional intelligence, and to you, it's common sense. To someone on the other side of the spectrum who doesn't have a high level of emotional intelligence, this stuff is not obvious. So the top four drivers of engagement, what your brain needs um, from a neuroscientific perspective, meaning and purpose, clarity, personal growth, and enablement. But let's just explain them in real language. Enablement, have you got the tools to do your job? Are you asking someone to walk to the North Pole wearing flip-flops? It's not gonna be a good idea. Personal growth is something we all want to different levels and different degrees, but we all want to feel that we're growing. I think when I asked David about this podcast, it's about learning and interesting conversations. That's part of David's own growth. We're sort of really running over time, but I just had one thing to ask, which is the situation in Twitter. I mean, I've been reading fairly extensively about Elon going in with the size nines. And what he's done, it seems, is the opposite of everything we're talking about, although I guess he's got a good vision around it. But he's not there to make people happy. It would seem quite the reverse. And I guess I'm worried that maybe he's going to start a trend because suddenly if he can get rid of lots of staff and Twitter doesn't collapse, other companies can. I think going back to that generational thing, I don't think people put up for it for very long, but is there a real danger in 2023 that we see a kind of reversal in terms of what's been going on? I guess there has been a move towards employee acknowledgement and things like that. Yeah. So there's two things to point out here. There's one which is privilege. Elon Musk is a billionaire. 
and he has the ability to make more mistakes than a normal entrepreneur. You can argue that he's earned that. You can go into his history of all this kind of stuff about his dad's mind, okay? But firstly, it goes back to some of the stuff we discussed on gender, but it goes into race, it goes into lots of things. There is an advantage that he has there in terms of his wealth to take those risks. The second point actually goes back to your world of user experience, okay? If you get bad customer experience, it's like a punch in the face. If you go to a restaurant and you're treated badly, it's most likely you won't go back. And if that trend continues, just like Damish said, if someone complains, it's just a fact. But that fact will lead quite quickly if that continues for the restaurant to shut down because nobody goes in. The issue, I'm not going to say which one's worse, but bad employee experience is built on privilege because if you're a single mum and you're being bullied at work, but you have to pay the fees for your kids to feed and everything like that, you may stay in that organisation longer than you would want to. It's easy for someone to go, I'll just quit. You may stay there, but what actually happens is that person is disengaged and you get all these terms like quiet quitting and all this kind of stuff. So bad employee experience is like a cancer that kills an organization over time. What happens in these organizations, and you're seeing it already, is the best people, the people who are amazing, they either leave or they're there just hating their lives. And that takes time for that to play out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, interesting. It's really interesting. We employ engineers. If we can compete for a salary of someone who's like that, we could suddenly compete for engineers that have come on the market that we wouldn't have been able to get pre-MUS. Yeah. So it's a complex thing. And I always think you have to remember privilege comes into it. I think it's a really good point. But you go back to like safety, part of safety is being... I want to feel safe that I can just live my life as I need to live it at a particular moment in time. Yeah, so it's really good, really good to kind of understand. Well, listen, we're sort of out of time. I really wanted to thank you. We'll provide links to the book, which comes out. Sounds fascinating. I really appreciate you going into that. But Damish and I, I think it's a topic that we've gravitated towards over the years. Yeah. It's addictive. If anyone's listening and they want to get into the data, my final point is we now release the data publicly. So if you go on the happinessindex.com, scroll down about halfway, you can actually see how employees, their engagement and happiness changes over a year. We've just released the last three years of data. I'd like some people a little bit interested. You can make this your career. It's interesting. There's a whole world building around this if this is something that interests you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Dan Demystify show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.